Volume 3, Part 2 of Herodotus's Histories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rachel Klippenstein. Histories, Volume 3, by Herodotus of Halicarnassus. Translated by E. D. Godley. Part 2. The discussion went that far. Then night came, and Xerxes was pricked by the advice of Artabanus. Thinking it over at night, he saw clearly that to send an army against Hellas was not his affair. He made this second resolve and fell asleep. Then, so the Persians say, in the night he saw this vision. It seemed to Xerxes that a tall and handsome man stood over him and said, Are you then changing your mind, Persian, and will not lead the expedition against Hellas, although you have proclaimed the mustering of the army? It is not good for you to change your mind, and there will be no one here to pardon you for it. Let your course be along the path you resolved upon yesterday. So the vision spoke, and seemed to Xerxes to vanish away. When day dawned, the king took no account of this dream, and he assembled the Persians whom he had before gathered together, and addressed them thus. Persians, forgive me for turning and twisting in my purpose. I am not yet come to the fullness of my wisdom and I am never free from people who exhort me to do as I said. It is true that when I heard Artabanus's opinion, my youthful spirit immediately boiled up, and I burst out with an unseemly and wrongful answer to one older than myself. But now I see my fault, and will follow his judgment. Be at peace, since I have changed my mind about marching against Hellas. When the Persians heard that, they rejoiced and made obeisance to him. But when night came on, the same vision stood again over Xerxes as he slept, and said, Son of Darius, have you then plainly renounced your army's march among the Persians, and made my words of no account, as though you had not heard them? Know for certain that if you do not lead your army out immediately, this will be the outcome of it. As you became great and mighty in a short time, so in a moment will you be brought low again. Greatly frightened by the vision, Xerxes leapt up from his bed, and sent out messenger to summon Artabanus. When he came, Xerxes said, Artabanus, for a moment I was of unsound mind, and I answered your good advice with foolish words. But after no long time I repented, and saw that it was right for me to follow your advice. Yet, though I desire to, I cannot do it. Ever since I turned back and repented, a vision keeps coming to haunt my sight, and it will not allow me to do as you advise. Just now it has threatened me and gone. Now if a god is sending the vision, and it is his full pleasure that there this expedition against Hellas take place, that same dream will hover about you, and give you the same command as it gives me. I believe that this is most likely to happen, if you take all my apparel, and sit wearing it upon my throne, and then lie down to sleep in my bed. Xerxes said this, but Artabanus would not obey the first command, thinking it was not right for him to sit on the royal throne. At last he was compelled, and did as he was bid, saying first, O king, I judge it of equal worth, whether a man is wise or willing to obey good advice. To both of these you have attained, but the company of bad men trips you up. Just as they say that sea, of all things the most serviceable to men, is hindered from following its nature by the blasts of wind that fall upon it. It was not that I heard harsh words from you that stung me, so much as that when two opinions were laid before the Persians, one tending to the increase of pride, the other to its abatement, showing how evil a thing it is to teach the heart continual desire of more than it has, of these two opinions, you preferred that one which was more fraught with danger to yourself and to the Persians. Now when you have turned to the better opinion, 
you say that while intending to abandon the expedition against the greeks you are haunted by a dream sent by some god which forbids you to disband the expedition but this is none of heaven's working my son the roving dreams that visit men are of such nature as i shall teach you since i am many years older than you those visions that rove about us in dreams are for the most part the thoughts of the day and in these recent days we have been very busy with this expedition but if this is not as i determine and it has something divine to it then you have spoken the conclusion of the matter let it appear to me just as it has to you and utter its command if it really wishes to appear it should do so to me no more by virtue of my wearing your dress instead of mine and my sleeping in your bed rather than in my own whatever it is that appears to you in your sleep surely it has not come to such folly as to infer from your dress that i am you when it sees me we must now learn if it will take no account of me and not deign to appear and haunt me whether i am wearing your robes or my own but will come to you if it comes continually i myself would say that it is something divine if you are determined that this must be done and there is no averting it and i must lie down to sleep in your bed so be it this duty i will fulfil and let the vision appear also to me but until then i will keep my present opinion so spoke artabanus and did as he was bid hoping to prove xerxes words vain he put on xerxes robes and sat on the king's throne then while he slept there came to him in his sleep the same dream that had haunted xerxes it stood over him and spoke thus are you the one who dissuades xerxes from marching against hellas because you care for him neither in the future nor now will you escape with impunity for striving to turn aside what must be to xerxes himself it has been declared what will befall him if he disobeys with this threat so it seemed to artabanus the vision was about to burn his eyes with hot irons he leapt up with a loud cry then sat by xerxes and told him the whole story of what he had seen in his dream and next he said o king since i have seen as much as a man may how the greater has often been brought low by the lesser i forbade you to always give rein to your youthful spirit knowing how evil a thing it is to have many desires and remembering the end of cyrus's expedition against the massagetai and of cambyses against the ethiopians and i myself marched with darius against the scythians knowing this i judged that you had only to remain in peace for all men to deem you fortunate but since there is some divine motivation and it seems that the gods mark hellas for destruction i myself change and correct my judgment now declare the gods message to the persians and bid them obey your first command for all due preparation do this so that nothing on your part be lacking to the fulfilment of the god's commission after this was said they were incited by the vision and when daylight came xerxes imparted all this to the persians artabanus now openly encouraged that course which he alone had before openly discouraged xerxes was now intent on the expedition and then saw a third vision in his sleep which the magi interpreted to refer to the whole earth and to signify that all men should be his slaves this was the vision xerxes thought that he was crowned with an olive bough of which the shoots spread over the whole earth and then the crown vanished from off his head where it was set the magi interpreted it in this way and immediately every single man of the persians who had been assembled rode away to his own province and there used all zeal to fulfil the king's command each desiring to receive the promised gifts thus it was that xerxes mustered his army searching out every part of the continent for full four years after the conquest of egypt he was equipping his force and preparing all that was needed for it before the fifth year was completed he set forth on his march with the might of a great multitude this was by far the greatest of all the expeditions that we know of 
The one that Darius led against the Scythians is nothing compared to it. Neither is the Scythian expedition when they burst into Media in pursuit of the Sumerians, and subdued and ruled almost all the upper lands of Asia. It was for this that Darius afterwards attempted to punish them. According to the reports, the expedition led by the sons of Atreus against Troy is also nothing by comparison. Neither is the one of the Mycians and Teucrians, which before the Trojan War crossed the Bosporus into Europe, subdued all the Thracians, and came down to the Ionian Sea, marching southward as far as the river Peneus. All these expeditions, and whatever others have happened in addition, could not together be compared with this single one. For what nation did Xerxes not lead from Asia against Hellas? What water did not fail when being drunk up except only the greatest rivers? Some people supplied him with ships, some were enrolled in his infantry, some were assigned the provision of horsemen, others of horse-bearing transports to follow the army, and others again of warships for the bridges, or of food and ships. Since those who had earlier attempted to sail around Athos had suffered shipwreck, for about three years preparations had been under way there. Triremes were anchored off Elias and the Chersonese. With these for their headquarters, all sorts of men in the army were compelled by whippings to dig a canal, coming by turns to the work. The inhabitants about Athos also dug. Bubares son of Megabazus and Artachais son of Artaius, both Persians, were the overseers of the workmen. Athos is a great and famous mountain, running out into the sea and inhabited by men. At the mountain's landward end it is in the form of a peninsula, and there is an isthmus about twelve stadia wide. Here is a place of level ground or little hills, from the sea by Acanthus to the sea opposite Torone. On this isthmus which is at the end of Athos, there stands a Greek town, Sane. There are others situated seaward of Sane and landward of Athos, and the Persian now intended to make them into island and not mainland towns. They are Dion, Olophyxus, Acrothum, Thysus, and Cleonae. These are the towns situated on Athos. The foreigners dug as follows, dividing up the ground by nation. They made a straight line near the town of Sane. When the channel had been dug to some depth, some men stood at the bottom of it and dug. Others took the dirt as it was dug out, and delivered it to yet others that stood higher on stages, and they again to others as they received it, until they came to those that were highest. These carried it out and threw it away. For all except the Phoenicians, the steep sides of the canal caved in, doubling their labor, since they made the span the same breadth at its mouth and at the bottom. This was bound to happen. But the Phoenicians showed the same skill in this as in all else they do. Taking in hand the portion that fell to them, they dug by making the topmost span of the canal as wide again as the canal was to be, and narrowed it as they worked lower, until at the bottom their work was of the same span as that of the others. There is a meadow there where they made a place for buying and marketing. Much ground grain frequently came to them from Asia. As far as I can judge by conjecture, Xerxes gave the command for this digging out of pride, wishing to display his power and leave a memorial. With no trouble they could have drawn their ships across the isthmus, yet he ordered them to dig a canal from sea to sea, wide enough to float two triremes rowed abreast. The same men who were assigned the digging were also assigned to join the banks of the river Strymon by a bridge. Thus Xerxes did this. He assigned the Phoenicians and Egyptians to make ropes of papyrus and white flax for the bridges, and to store provisions for his army, so that neither the army nor the beasts of burden would starve on the march to Hellas. After making inquiry, he ordered them to store it in the most fitting places, carrying it to the various places from all parts of Asia in cargo ships and transports. They brought most of it to the White Headland, as it is called, in Thrace, 
Some were dispatched to Tyrodiza in the Perinthian country, or to Doriscus, others to Aeon on the Strymon, or to Macedonia. While these worked at their appointed task, all the land force had been mustered, and was marching with Xerxes to Sardis, setting forth from Critala in Cappadocia, which was the place appointed for gathering all the army that was to march with Xerxes himself by land. Now which of his governors received the promised gifts from the king for bringing the best-equipped army, I cannot say. I do not even know if the matter was ever determined. When they had crossed the river Halas and entered Phrygia, they marched through that country to Kelainai, where arises the source of the river Meander, and of another river no smaller, which is called Cataractes. It rises right in the market-place of Kelainai, and issues into the Meander. The skin of Marcius the Silenus also hangs there. The Phrygian story tells that it was flayed off him, and hung up by Apollo. In this city Pythias son of Attis, a Lydian, sat awaiting them. He entertained Xerxes himself, and all the king's army, with the greatest hospitality, and declared himself willing to provide money for the war. When Pythias offered the money, Xerxes asked the Persians present who this Pythias was, and how much wealth he possessed in making the offer. They said, O king, this is the one who gave your father Darius the gift of a golden plane tree and vine. He is now the richest man we know of after you. Xerxes marveled at this last saying, and next himself asked Pythias how much wealth he had. O king, said Pythias, I will not conceal the quantity of my property from you, nor pretend that I do not know. I know, and will tell you the exact truth. As soon as I had learned that you were coming down to the Greek sea, I wanted to give you money for the war, so I inquired into the matter, and my reckoning showed me that I had two thousand talents of silver, and four million daric staters of gold, lacking seven thousand. All this I freely give to you. For myself I have sufficient livelihood from my slaves and my farms. Thus he spoke. Xerxes was pleased with what he said, and replied, My Lydian friend, since I came out of Persia I have so far met with no man who was willing to give hospitality to my army, nor who came into my presence unsummoned, and offered to furnish money for the war, besides you. But you have entertained my army nobly, and offer me great sums. In return for this I give you these privileges. I make you my friend, and out of my own wealth I give you the seven thousand staters which will complete your total of four million, so that your four million not lack the seven thousand, and the even number be reached by my completing it. Remain in possession of what you now possess, and be mindful to be always such as you are. Neither for the present nor in time will you regret what you now do. Xerxes said this, and made good his words, then journeyed ever onward. Passing by the Phrygian town called Anawa, and the lake from which salt is obtained, he came to Colossae, a great city in Phrygia, where the liver Lycus plunges into a cleft in the earth and disappears, until it reappears about five stadia away. This river issues into the Meander. From Colossae the army held its course for the borders of Phrygia and Lydia, and came to the city of Kydrara, where there stands a pillar set up by Croesus which marks the boundary with an inscription. Passing from Phrygia into Lydia, he came to the place where the roads part. The road on the left leads to Caria, the one on the right to Sardis. On the latter the traveller must cross the river Meander, and pass by the city of Calatibus, where craftsmen make honey out of wheat and tamarisks. Xerxes went by this road and found a plane tree, which he adorned with gold because of its beauty, and he assigned one of his immortals to guard it. On the next day he reached the city of the Lydians. After he arrived in Sardis, 
he first sent heralds to Hellas to demand earth and water, and to command the preparation of meals for the king. He sent demands for earth everywhere except to Athens and Lacedaemon. The reason for his sending for earth and water the second time was this. He fully believed that whoever had not previously given it to Darius's messengers would now be compelled to give by fear, so he sent out of desire to know this for certain. After this he prepared to march to Abydos. Meanwhile his men were bridging the Hellespont from Asia to Europe. On the Chersonese, which is on the Hellespont, between the city of Cestus and Maditus there is a broad headland, running out from the sea opposite Abydos. It was here that not long afterward the Athenians, when Xanthippus son of Ariphron was their general, took Artaictes, a Persian, and the governor of Cestus, and crucified him alive. He had been in the habit of bringing women right into the temple of Protesilaus at Elias, and doing impious deeds there. The men who had been given this assignment made bridges starting from Abydos across to that headland. The Phoenicians won a flaxen cables, and the Egyptians a papyrus one. From Abydos to the opposite shore it is a distance of seven stadia. But no sooner had the strait been bridged, then a great storm swept down, breaking and scattering everything. When Xerxes heard of this, he was very angry, and commanded that the Hellespont be whipped with three hundred lashes, and a pair of fetters be thrown into the sea. I have even heard that he sent branders with them to brand the Hellespont. He commanded them, while they whipped, to utter words outlandish and presumptuous. Bitter water, our master thus punishes you, because you did him wrong, though he had done you none. Xerxes the king will pass over you, whether you want it or not. In accordance with justice, no one offers you sacrifice, for you are a turbid and briny river. He commanded that the sea receive these punishments, and that the overseers of the bridge over the Hellespont be beheaded. So this was done by those who were appointed to the thankless honour, and new engineers set about making the bridges. They made the bridges as follows. In order to lighten the strain of the cables, they placed fifty-oared ships and triremes alongside each other, three hundred and sixty to bear the bridge nearest the Euxine Sea, and three hundred and fourteen to bear the other. All lay obliquely to the line of the Pontus, and parallel with the current of the Hellespont. After putting the ships together they let down very great anchors, both from the end of the ships on the Pontus side to hold fast against the winds blowing from within that sea, and from the other end, towards the west and the Aegean, to hold against the west and south winds. They left a narrow opening to sail through in the line of fifty-oared ships and triremes, so that whoever wanted to could sail by small craft to the Pontus or out of it. After doing this they stretched the cables from the land, twisting them taut with wooden windlasses. They did not as before keep the two kinds apart, but assigned for each bridge two cables of flax and four of papyrus. All these had the same thickness and fine appearance, but the flaxen were heavier in proportion, for a cubit of them weighed a talent. When the strait was thus bridged, they sawed logs of wood to a length equal to the breadth of the floating supports, and laid them in order on the taut cables. After placing them together, they then made them fast. After doing this, they carried brushwood onto the bridge. When this was all laid in order, they heaped up earth on it and stamped it down. Then they made a fence on either side, so that the beasts of burden and horses not be frightened by the sight of the sea below them. End of Volume 3, Part 2 Recording by Rachel Klippenstein.